0: Hello to all of you listening to this message. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. It's been about two weeks since I have given a message. Normally, I give a message once a week. But I began to pursue uh, something this week that took up a lot of my time, and that was in the area of counterfeit revival, counterfeit ministries, and counterfeit conversion. For those of you that are new, I want to give you an understanding of how I am about to share this message. There is a scripture in 1 Peter chapter 4 that says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. That is what I will seek to do in this message to allow the Spirit of God to speak through me those words that are more than just my words, that are carried forth by the Spirit of God. And that happens as we are in a conscious state of worship in our speaking. That allows the spirit of prophecy to function. As it says in Revelations chapter 9, As the angel commands John not to prostrate himself before his feet in an act of what would be symbolic of worship, he commands John and says, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is this spirit of prophecy. In other words, it is out of worship that the spirit of prophecy flows and testifies of who Christ is. Because that is not just coming from our intellect. That is coming from our innermost being. And of course, those that have been brought forth anew by the Spirit of God and immersed in the Spirit of God, known as the baptism of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, will then be able to speak forth words from their spirit that have also the Spirit of God coming through those words. As Christ said unto you, the words that I speak are spirit and life. This week, I should say these last two weeks, I want to share the various passages I received. And for those that are new, what I do is I cast lots on the Word of God, where there's an equal chance each day that I do this for it to be on any particular chapter in the whole of the Bible. And I trust in the sovereignty of God, whose attached to every particle of existence in omnipresence and omniscience, which is all-knowing. That's the word for knowing all things is omniscience, and omnipresence is the word that God's presence is everywhere at the same time. And so I know that when I do things that are not done in a way that is light or trivial, but are done out of an act of reverence and awe before God, then the casting of the lots works and God leads and directs. It's very rare that I have experienced that I haven't heard from God this way. And those times have usually been because there's been some area of sin in my life that I've had to repent of, not major sin, but things that displeased the Lord. So I facilitate speaking as the oracles of God by allowing the greatest possibility of God to lead me to any particular chapter in the Word of God. And so as I begin to share here, I want to share some of the passages that I've received in the last two weeks and what I believe God is saying. I do not prepare my messages I have brief notes from a half hour of meditation on each chapter that I make, that's all the time I spend, and so I don't know what I'm going to share here, but I'm going to begin to touch on the passages I received this week, and then speak from a particular chapter that I believe is the main focus chapter of these last two weeks. And that passage is Ephesians chapter 1, which I received twice in the last two weeks by the casting of lots, on July the 28th, on Tuesday, and most recently on Wednesday, I believe, which is August the 5th. Before I get into any of these things, I'm going to just... uh, Pause for a moment and have a drink of water. So I briefly want to spend some time here in prayer before I speak. Father, God in heaven, I ask in your holy name that your word would prevail through me to the glory and the honor and the praise of who you are that those in the foreknowledge of God that have come across this message would receive their destiny in clarity through this message that would birth them forth onto your purpose. That Lord, your word would come forth through me that I would be hidden and you would be revealed in your glory that people would become conscious Of you thank you for what you will do in their lives and in the corporate body of Christ because this message is going forth now I briefly mentioned that I had been drawn by the leading of the Holy Spirit into discovering the deception of counterfeit revivals, of counterfeit ministries, and counterfeit conversions. And I don't know how that's going to fit into this message. But I can say this, that I was shocked at what I discovered. And I understand all the more the urgency Of this hour, as Christ said, that in the time just before His coming, there would be such great deception that if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. And we are certainly living in that time. And some of the people that many of the people are looking up to in the charismatic movements around the world have entered into very false counterfeit revival counterfeit conversions and counterfeit teachings that are contrary to the teaching of the word of God. Some have equated Adam as being equal to God, an exact replica of God. That's false. That's not taught in the word of God. And it's really almost blasphemy to say that a mere creature man is equal to God. Some have said that Jesus took on the nature of Satan and was born again in hell. That is a totally false doctrine. I could go into all of these things and explain why. There's no scriptures that support that. In fact, the word of God, all the verses point against that being the case. This is man's own understanding and certainly does not come from the revelation of the Holy Spirit because it contradicts the word of God. Some have even taught that there are nine persons in the Trinity. Well, that's just totally off the wall. That Jesus died in the cross for our physical healing. Well, certainly that is part of it, but that's not all. There's a lot more that Jesus died on the cross for, and I'm sure they believe that too. But the emphasis is on physical healing. Often with a misunderstanding of committing our infirmities to God, our sicknesses to God, in such a way that releases his healing. And I won't go into that now. Christians do not have the sin nature and therefore do not sin. That is a totally false teaching that is not in the word of God. That Jesus gave up or lost his divinity at the incarnation? Give me a break. That's not taught in the word of God. That is totally false teaching from man's understanding and has no verses that are properly in context that would possibly support such a teaching. Jesus never lost his divinity and never gave it up on the cross. And I can go into depth and explain that, possibly later on. God is not in complete control of his creation and is not sovereign, is a false teaching that is not taught in the word of God. I'm just outlining some of the deceptions that are in the charismatic movement here, Those who speak negative words against God's anointed are unsaved agents of Satan who hate Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Well, God's anointed are in conformity to his appointment in the word of God. And those that go contrary to God's word They don't need to be spoken against except in this sense that they are exposed for the error that they are in. If they are like Saul that was anointed but was in rebellion against God's anointing in his life. The gospel package includes signs and wonders. It certainly does. The gospel does accompany is accompanied with signs and wonders. But if signs and wonders becomes the focus in the message of the gospel instead of Christ, then it's a false gospel. Because an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, Christ said, and no sign shall be given them. So if an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, the sign is evident in the message that they give, which emphasizes the supernatural to the neglect of relationship with the one that is the giver thereof. The gospel can't be fully preached unless it includes signs and wonders. I would say the gospel can be preached in the demonstration and power of the Spirit. And whether there are signs and wonders or not, as John the Baptist was regarded as the greatest among men by Christ, even greater than Elijah the prophet that did many miracles, and yet did no signs and wonders. And did he not preach the good news of Christ even before Christ died, even as Abraham did, as is described in the Word of God? Of course, all of these things I'm just outlining now. So that's just something that I'm bringing out a bit. But I want to now go into the passages I received in the last two weeks. I mentioned Ephesians chapter 1 will be the theme passage. But I briefly want to just touch on, before we go, some of the other passages I received. I received Hosea 14 on July the 29th. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. So shall we render our lips, it's saying, to break the shell of hardness, pride, and self-sufficiency away from God in our lives. Because the word calves, if you look it up in the Hebrew, has this understanding in the original symbol letters. It means to break up, to frustrate, to violate, okay? But the symbol letters for it, the first is the symbol of the lips of a mouth, which has the understanding and the original of meaning, edge, scatter, and blow. And the next is the symbol of a person's head, which has the meaning of being first, prominent. And so it has the understanding of, being, of opening the head or breaking with the lips what is the prominent thing in us. The scattering, the breaking of prominence in our heart with our lips. The prominence of self it has the understanding of bringing our lips before God in repentance in such a way that the hardness of independence and pride in self are broken because we are taking with us words to turn to God in order to ask him to take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. That is the understanding of the word calves when it says, so will we render the calves of our lips. So will we render the breaking of our lips of the self that is within us by taking to us those words so that we can truly Pray and say, God, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. In Hosea, this particular chapter goes on. In fact, I have other things here that are similar words to that one on calves. It has the understanding of burst with one of the word meanings, of dividing with another, of breaking with another. There's various variations of this word calves. And I won't go into that. There's too many here. And they, they are related to the meaning of other words. And so the Lord continues to say in Hosea, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. It is then when we render the calves of our lips, that God heals the bent state of being towards falling away from God, a bent state of being that is prone towards turning away from God. And in this passage in Hosea, it goes on to say, Ephraim shall say, what have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree, for on me is thy fruit found. This is the Lord speaking. So once Ephraim sees the absolute abhorrence of his idolatry and casts it off as a filthy garment with those calves of his lips, the Lord says, Not only that I'll heal his bent state of blacksliding, but I have seen and observed his heart, and now I'm going to be like a green tree to him. And he's going to realize that his life source wasn't in these things of vanity that leave one empty like a black hole in outer space that sucks in and destroys everything around it because of a nature that is bent against God, that is anti-existent and anti-life. Now you recognize the very source of life. So that's what was received then, just touching on that. I also received Isaiah 65. And this again is a long passage. I'm not going to get into it. And it's describing again those that are the true servants of God and how He will call them by a new name. And it says in Isaiah sixty six fourteen, 14, and ye shall see and your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall thrive like grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to them that fear him. Now I'm reading this from the subjulagent version which is a very accurate translation from the older Hebrew vulgar which... Uh, They don't have nowadays, but was used to translate into Greek at that time. And it's very accurate. And so you do sometimes get a few things in there that you don't get in the King James. And this is one statement here. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to them that fear him. And I do want to emphasize the fear of God in relation to all we are sharing here about overcoming deception which is rooted in a backslidden, bent state against God that can be very deceptive in a religious practice of our own ways. We go on, and on Saturday, I received Jeremiah 9. And in this, I Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will punish all them which are circumcised with the uncircumcised. So the emphasis here is in who we are glorying in. Are we glorying in all of our wisdom that we got from the word of God? And puffed up with mere knowledge? Or are we glorying in the fact that we have an intimate relationship with God so that we actually know him intimately and understand him intimately? That God is the one that exercises loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. It is the recognition of who God is. In the context of all the contradictions of suffering in the world, that brings us into a place of fellowship and intimacy with God, and that may well be explained later. Jeremiah 15 says this on August the 3rd, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. Therefore thus saith the Lord, If thou return, then will I bring thee again, and thou shalt stand before me. If thou take forth the precious from the vial, thou shalt be as my mouth. Let them return unto thee, but return not thou unto them. So God is saying, if you want to be my mouthpiece, you must take the precious from the vial. And you must not compromise with them by cooing up to them in their iniquity. But you must prevail with, your, with the uncompromised word to reprove the unfruitful works of righteousness to the point that they are brought under such conviction that they come to you rather than you going to them. Nowadays, many do not take the precious from the vile. There is mixture, there is deception, and this is very evident in so much of what has come forth that is counterfeit revival, because it does not have in it the fear of God, it does not have in it genuine brokenness of heart with repentance and humility before God that bears the fruit of purification, of holiness, and righteousness that comes out of that. Psalms 48 is about the city of God. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of what? His holiness. And the mountain speaks of government. Who are those that can ascend into the government of God but those that are Holy. Who is he that can ascend into the hill of the Lord? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, that has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, nor used money to his own advantage over others to their loss, which is usury or interest? God is known in her palaces for a refuge. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God. God will establish it forever. Selah, that meaning meditate on that. That God will establish his city forever. That is his city of holiness we have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. So within this city, there is the temple of the Lord, and in that temple, the saints dwell upon the loving kindness of God, which is his very being, for God is love. And I will be sharing more about the very being of God, being love, and how that contains the holiness of God according to thy name, which is the very being of who God is, expressed to creation. Name has the understanding of expression of who God really is, to creation. The word soul has the understanding of who one really is in themselves. That is what you will find In the Old Testament, Vines' definition between the word soul, which means life, and the word name. Very interesting indeed. Because the Lord is the self-existent one. And the essence of the self-existent one, which is Yahweh, is his being of love. And it is the being of God's love that is that quality that can hold on ending life and unlimited power without corruption, and therefore in a state of ever expanding goodness and greater and greater realms of fulfillment, as love is expressed therewith. According to thy name or thy being, O God, so is thy praise. Unto the ends of the earth, thy right hand is full of righteousness. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is on the right hand of the Father. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. The city of God will be established forever because it is the place of authority in the government of his holiness, which holds no corruption. It is in the midst of the temple of God in that city that we think upon God's loving kindness from which issues praise unto the ends of the earth so that the knowledge of the Lord fills all the earth one of these days in the near future as the waters cover the sea. God is calling us as his people to give him no rest until his bride church comes forth and burns as a torch bright in every community and city upon the earth, which is accumulated in Jerusalem, breaking forth as a bright light, as the very seat of the coming government of God upon the earth. When that new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, 1,500 kilometers square, height and depth, What a sight that will be, as described in Revelations chapter 21 and 22. The last book of the Bible for those that are new. On Tuesday, I received Genesis 22, and this is very significant too. This is where Abraham is tempted by God to offer his son Isaac on the altar. And of course, this is amazing about Abraham, that he actually obeys the Lord and takes his son. And he's about to bring the knife down upon his son believing that God could actually raise him from the dead. And the angel of the Lord, in verse 11 of Genesis 22, says this, And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. For now I know thou fearest God. The fear of God is what? It is not a mere intellectual assent towards God and reverence. It is a deep turning of the heart that recognizes, chooses to recognize who God in reality is, to us personally, and to all the things we observe in the world. It is a choice to recognize God's being that can only be constituted in a certain state as ultimately trustworthy. There is no other state that can possibly be ultimately trustworthy. And it is the willingness to recognize that quality in God that is... that is that constitutes him as ultimately trustworthy. That is the genuine fear of God. It is a choice that involves the deep turning of the heart in recognition of the essence of God's being that can only be an essence that is ultimately trustworthy to contain unlimited life and power without dissipation or corruption. In a state of ever-expanding goodness, out of the creativity of the being of God's love. And I will expand upon this as we go on. I will say this here as I sense the Holy Spirit has just began to reveal this to me in the last day or so, that the inner conscience of people, when they choose not to sear it, to ignore it. That inner conscience which is an innate awareness of what is good from what is not good is always pointing towards this quality in God's love. And I believe right here is the right place to begin speaking something that I often teach in my messages because I want people that are new that do not understand these things to know about it. And the others that have heard me teach before, I always say it in a different way, so there's always something new to learn. So I want to describe what is that quality in God that deems God as ultimately trustworthy. And that the inner conscience, and it's not a conscious intellectual acknowledgement, it's more a subconscious thing in the heart involving the conscience that points innately to a knowing of what is ultimately good, which must be a quality that is in a constitution that is ultimately trustworthy in order to contain goodness. Without corruption, if there was corruption, it would no longer be good. God is described in the word of God by different names. One of the first names is Yahweh or Yehovah, depending on the vol usage. It basically means the self-existent one. God also describes himself in relation to this in both the Old and New Testament by saying, I am that I am. In the Hebrew, it is ahiyah asher ahiyah. I am that I am. Jesus Christ said that he was the I am. He was saying the same thing. He was saying that I am the self-existent one. That is one of the names of God. It, In essence is saying that I am the very source of all reality. So you ask yourself, okay, what is reality? Well, you find in the dictionaries that if you look up the definition of the word truth, that the word truth basically is described in various dictionaries as that which is real. So you look up the word real and reality, and it is basically described as that which is unchangeable, which is indestructible, and which is everlasting, which is immovable, which is absolute. That is the description of reality, basically, in various dictionaries. God is saying that he is the very source of reality, the I am that I am. So what is the essence of reality? It is a state that has no corruption in it, for if it had corruption in it, it would be perishable. There would be the principle of destruction within it that would ensure eventual undoing over time to total chaos There are two laws. There's the first and second law of thermodynamics in science. The first law says that matter always exists in some state or another. It may be changed into different forms, but it's always there. And the second law says that everything left on its own always goes in a direction of disorder to greater and greater disorder onto total chaos. So these two laws, when you put them together, are amazing contradiction. The first law is, in essence, saying that something existed without a beginning. And yet, the second law is saying that everything should have come to total chaos in the infinite past, because... Left on its own, everything goes in the direction of disorder. And yet, here we are as a contradiction to that in a highly complex universe with tremendous design, where even the cell itself has in it little machines that operate that are more complex than an outer space, than a spaceship going to outer space, landing on a planet, reproducing itself, and spreading and flying to other planets and continuing to reproduce itself. That's a known fact in science. And you can look at the experts in this area, such as a book called Endoran's Black Box. So this points to God as the ultimate source of reality. And reality has no corruption in it. It is totally full of life with no corruption. So what is the essence of the reality of God's being? It is love. And love is a quality that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of self-gratification. It is independent of feeling. It can involve feelings. But the highest form of love, which is God, who is love, Always chooses the highest lasting good to the denial of anything that would be less, that would be a more immediate fulfillment. This love, therefore, is innate in its being to be, as it were, a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, and deed that would be contrary to this quality that always chooses the highest-lasting good over any more immediate choice, which would be, of course, a choice that would involve corruption and therefore could not contain unlimited power and life without dissipation, and eventual destruction. So we have the being of God's love, which is the defensive aspect of his love, which is his holiness. It is like a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, and deed that is contrary to this highest state of love. And it is the foundation from which springs forth creativity that can be ultimate. A love that can be expressed that is ultimate in goodness. That can take unlimited life and power and use it in a way that has no corruption in it and that can ever expand forever into greater realms of fulfillment greater enlargement and fulfillment and this is ultimately manifested in the fact that out of the foundation of God's holiness can come forth the power for God without contradicting the integrity of his love which is his holiness this stated being that is a blazing fire of such pure love that it consumes all that is the slightest contrary to it in judgment. This foundation of God's love, which is the defensive aspect of his love, is ultimately manifested as being ultimate in the power to be able to assure to his creation destiny without Violating the integrity of his love, which is only possible by God himself taking judgment upon himself for his creation that is created with their own free will so that they are not merely robots, but can become a corporate bride that can be brought into harmony with him in marriage. And there's volumes that one can talk about in that regard. We are the source of our own action. Therefore, we are self-responsible. We were created in the image of God with the capacity to create like God. The issue is bringing that free will that can freely choose and has the potential of heaven and hell because it can freely choose into harmony with God to become his corporate bride. So the two aspects of God's being, of love, are as it were, very well illustrated as the ultimate negative and positive of the universe. The ultimate negative, so to speak, which represents a negative symbol in math is representative of cutting off all that is contrary to his being of love. It is also representative of the foundation of reality, which is the holiness of God or the integrity of his love, from which forms the plus sign from that foundation, which is the symbol of the cross. Only God could be a perfect atoning sacrifice. And I believe that indeed from the very beginning of time they recognized that in the being of God there was such an ultimate perfection of, of love, that there was the capacity within the being of God to become a perfect atoning sacrifice for his creation, to absorb the consequences of their sin upon them himself without being destroyed and, in fact, rise from the dead. Oh, I'm just touching on this. It's an in-depth subject, but everything in creation has a negative and positive. Everything in creation has a male and a female counterpart, which also speaks of God's ultimate purpose, that he wants a corporate bride. The negative is recognizing the absolute purity of God's love, of his holiness, of the integrity of his love, instead of rebelling against it. Yes, there are consequences. When free-willed beings can choose their own choices and go against the holiness of God and become offended at the consequences of their choices against the holiness of God or the integrity of his love. But it is the recognition and the acceptance of God's being of love in his holiness that allows us to recognize the goodness of God. For it is only in the holiness of God that there can be contained wholeness, that is a state of being without corruption without a state that is corrupt like a black hole in outer space that sucks everything in onto itself in a destructive way because self has been put on the throne in the place of God in our lives by our own free choices. The recognition of God's being, of absolute, ultimate, pure love, the integrity of his love, must be recognized to recognize the wholeness. It is through the holiness of God that there is wholeness in God, a state of ultimate goodness without corruption from which springs forth ultimate beauty. And all we see in creation is so beautiful when you see a beautiful woman. It is a reflection of the beauty of God, who is the very source of all beauty and of all wholeness. But that is held in his holiness. It is held in the purity of his love. And from this foundation represented in the negative symbol, as we see, there's the negative and positive in everything that is created. All our cells have negatives and positives. The atoms have negatives and positives. All things are held together by such. And it's ultimately represented in God, who is love, in this integrity of his love, from which springs forth the positive symbol, which is... That God's love is so great that He condescended into this time and space realm in the full expression of Himself, which is His Son, and suffered more than you, a mere creature, and humbled Himself more than you, a mere creature, and absorbed all the judgment of this world upon Himself so that we could actually choose to repent and be reconciled to God and to receive forgiveness and assurance of forgiveness and assurance of ultimate destiny and purpose with God that will go on forever in greater and greater realms of fulfillment and enlargement in fellowship with God as part of his corporate bride in fellowship with him. And in the conscience of every being, human being in this world, there is in the heart the awareness of what is ultimately good, of what is ultimately good must be ultimately trustworthy. It is the awareness that there must be judgment for that which is contrary to what is good. What is ultimately good, which is this love that is so pure. And in that awareness, there's the awareness that a God that has a love that is so pure must be ultimately good, and that goodness must be ultimately manifested in the power of God to be able to assure forgiveness. And so within the being of God, there has always been the reality that he not only has the capacity to be a perfect atoning sacrifice, but is in reality that, and that was even before the creation of the world. For there are various verses which mention this. In Revelations 18, there's a verse that says that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, he was, it was a reality that he was crucified for us before the world was even created. That was a reality in the being of God, not just a capacity. And from the very time of Adam and Eve, there was the recognition of these two aspects of the being of God, which could only be what is ultimately trustworthy to be able to contain unlimited life and power without Corruption. Only a God, a creator that can assure destiny to his creation, could be perfect. If he he created a creation that he could not provide destiny and purpose to, it would imply that he created what did not have purpose and would imply that he was imperfect. But now God is revealed as ultimately trustworthy. And that within his being, there is such goodness contained out of his holiness that it is ultimately expressed in reality, in the power to those who repent to receive the assurance of forgiveness and recognize that forgiveness lies only in the being of God, not in anything of ourselves. I I could talk for a long time about all the verses that point this out in the pre-Christ scriptures or the Old Testament as it's described. I am talking about Abraham fearing God. The fear of God is the right recognition of the reality of who God is from the heart that allows us To know that God has our best interest in mind, no matter how great the contradiction is. And in this case, Abraham had such a trust in who God is, because trust comes out of this recognition in the fear of God. How does that work? Well, it's described in the New Testament this way, that faith works by love. So how does faith work by love? Faith works by love. This way it springs out of the fear of God. When there is a true turning in the heart to recognize God and to receive God in his holiness and in his mercy, the ultimate negative and positive of God's being, of love. When there is that, there is the recognition of God's mercy and how great it is to us personally. Because we first recognized and received the holiness of God without offense. In other words, we, instead of being offended at the consequences of God's holiness, recognize that we deserve judgment in an existence that is less than nothing, which is an existence of torment. But because of God's mercy, we receive. Because we receive God's holiness, we also recognize God's goodness out of his holiness, which causes us to recognize the greatness of his mercy to us. And when we recognize the greatness of his mercy to us, we recognize the greatness of his love. And it is in the recognition of the greatness of his love, which is manifested in the grace of God that comes out of the holiness of God or the recognition of his mercy. That there is the response of faith. Faith works by love. Faith means in the New Testament moral persuasion. Moral persuasion in who God is to the point that our spirit that is like a clenched fist in its unborn state of rebellion against God opens up from that state of hardness and pride and cries out like an open hand of surrender and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in that state of trust, which is outward from self, is a state of selflessness. So our spirit is brought into a state of selflessness, our inner being. The inner being of our spirit and soul, in measure our soul, is brought into a state of selflessness in the recognition of the greatness of God's mercy and therein His love towards us personally. And in that comes the other open hand, which is represented in the Holy Spirit of God, to dwell with our spirit in that state of selfless trust. Now the hand cannot close and do a fence cleanse fist again, because there is the dwelling of the Spirit of God with our spirit in a state of faith, which is the new nature, that is clearly described in 1 John when it says, This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. So our faith is what is born of God and it is our faith that overcomes the present system of things that is based on a corrupt state that cannot go on because it has corruption in it. It is a state of self-worship in independence from God that is like a black hole in outer space that eventually totally self-destructs because it has corruption in it, contrary to the being of God that has no corruption in it. There is in the conscience, which is that inward compass that innately knows good from bad, and that points to what is ultimately good, the recognition of these two aspects of the being of God. I don't have time to go into many questions about these things, so I want to do a summation here on Abraham. The key in this verse is, for now I know that thou fearest God. Seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Abraham was persuaded. He had the response of faith. Remember, the word pistis means moral persuasion in who God is in the New Testament. And the word amen in the Old, in other words, basically means the same thing. Without getting into detail. So out of the fear of God, there is the right recognition of God in which there's the recognition of that only quality that can be ultimately trustworthy, which is this love that does not violate its integrity and is substitutionary, is able to provide destiny through perfect atoning sacrifice in God himself, ultimately revealed in his one and only son. And for those that are new, I just want to briefly mention here that we do not believe in three gods. There is only one God. God is in three personages, or if you don't want to use the word personage, conscious states of being like we are in government that transcends time and space and sees the end from the beginning he's known as the father in that state he is the the word father means originator he's the originator of all things as the father and he sees the end from the beginning because he is beyond time and space and so God if he could not be in personage in that realm would not be God he could not be his person in that realm how could he possibly be ruling in that realm but God is also expressed into his creation, and the Son is the full expression of God the Father into his creation. The word Son means expression. Jesus Christ is also called the Word of God, and the word Word means expression. It says in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father. He, if God could not be in personage within the time and space realm of His creation, he would no longer be God because He could not rule over that dimension. And God also is in the Holy Spirit, an omnipresence, filling all things. So there's the three ultimate aspects of existence. that which is beyond time and space, that which is in time and space, and that which fills all space. As the Father God governs beyond time and space and is the originator. As the Son, he is fully expressed into creation and rules in personage in that realm. And as the Holy Spirit, he is in omnipresence, able to be in personage everywhere at the same time and also holds every piece and particle that he has created in intelligence, in intelligent attachment. To be, therefore, to be in an ongoing state of genuinely fearing God from the heart is to be choosing to rightly recognize the being of God and his love with its integrity of required judgment from which issue's mercy is ultimately trustworthy. Only that is ultimately trustworthy. Therein, Abraham recognized the goodness of God and perceived that God's goodness, that God and his goodness Saw everything in Abraham and that God was allowing it, and that God had his best interest in mind with his son in what he was allowing to have happen. This perception of God's love birthed a trust in God, in Abraham, that God could even raise Isaac from the dead. Now, in this passage, God goes on to say different things, and he and the place is called jehovah Yaira, Which means basically this. It's the name of God that God sees. Abraham recognized that God saw it all and that he was good. And that he could trust him through the trial of offering his son. Well, I didn't mean to get into preaching that. That's been probably the main part of the message. And then finally I come to Ephesians 1 again. And so I want to share Ephesians 1 also is the theme passage. And I'm only going to go up to the first seven verses of Ephesians chapter 1 because I've been preaching for now a little over an hour. So I want to share and read this particular part of Ephesians chapter 1. So I'm going to turn now to... Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Okay. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. I'm not going to continue on for lack of time. The key thing I want to point out in Ephesians chapter 1, is that in verse six, this is the theme verse. The purpose of God is this, that we should be to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the blood. We are made accepted in God when we become those that are to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, giving the context around that theme verse in verse 6, Paul is lit, almost worshiping God as he writes down these words. It's like he's worshiping God. He's saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So he's praising God the Father, that God the Father in government has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in this present realm that we are existing in. We can enter in to heavenly realms in Christ. God, the Father, was the one that allowed us in this present time and space realm to be able to experience that relationship of fellowship with God. And that happened in what is beyond the time and space realm, which is described in the next verse. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world or before the world was created. In other words, before the plans of the world were laid. God the Father chose us in Christ, that we should be holy and without blame before Christ in love. He had planned this before he had even created the world, God the Father. And he predestinated us onto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. In other words, he pre-marked our paths. That we would come to the place where we actually experienced being adopted by him as his children through Jesus Christ. Because you see, in the pre-marking of our path, what is that? Well, there's another scripture that says this in Acts when Paul is talking to the Athenians. He says, by the Holy Spirit, that God is for no one, the boundaries of the nations, and has so cornered them with those boundaries that they would be cornered to seek God, that they would be cornered to the place where they would come to seek and find their ultimate destiny and their creator. God allows circumstances in people's lives in order to corner them to the place of facing the reality of who he is, instead of continuing in the deception of their own ways, of trying to be their own God, trying to fill the vacuum in their life, which has always left them more and more empty, in a state of self-delusion and emptiness. And people become more and more desperate, so they go into greater depths of evil to try to fill that void And some can permanently harden themselves by being sold out to evil and darkness and even Satanism and the worship of Satan itself. But God is working in the nations. And the various restrictions and lack of freedom in nations, he's for no one, all of that, and his purpose is that they would be cornered to the point in time, some point in time, where it would become so desperate that they would finally turn to the truth. It is also true in our individual lives that many of us end up in the place like the prodigal son through the consequences of our own choices and the circumstances that God has premarked in our lives to bring us to the place where we finally choose to not ignore the inner conscience that points towards who God really is. In his being, it is ultimately real and nothing could be more real and more trustworthy than a God who requires judgment and all that is contrary to love and yet can be so good therein to assure forgiveness to all that would repent and receive it. This is a deep turning of the heart that results in genuine spiritual rebirth. And it says in this verse that this pre-marking to corner us to the place where we are adopted as his children, is according to the good pleasure of his will, and that it results in praise of the glory of his grace. Christ said of the publican, in con- when he contrasted and he described what true conversion is, he says, there the Pharisees are, and they are thanking God that they're not sinners like other men and that they fast a number of times a week and give thighs, filled with their own pride. And here there is this publican, this tax collector, and he won't even lift his face to heaven and he's smiting his breast and crying with a loud voice and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God, Christ said, that publican was truly justified before God because he truly circumcised his heart and recognized his need of the mercy and the love of God. He recognized first the holiness of God, and then out of that, that he deserved judgment, and therein recognized the greatness of his need of God's mercy, and therein received it, and thus received the love of God. And so now he cries out with a true heart of worship, receiving the mercy of God and is filled with praise and thankfulness that he's been forgiven for so much. And so now he is praising what? The glory of the grace of God. Emanating from the grace of God's being, which is his mercy, obviously there is glory. What is glory? It is something that is so totally pure and clean and filled with life and light that it is just ultimate goodness. It is a light that shines with a love that is so pure and so great that it is filled with a life of ultimate goodness onto us that causes a reciprocation on our being back to God in thankfulness. That is to the praise. It is praising the glory that is issuing out of the grace of God, This, this, this beautiful, bright light and quality that is so totally pure and without corruption that it is so heavy that there's nothing popped up in it. There is nothing of corruption in it. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And that is God's purpose. And it is therein that we are accepted in God, as it says here in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he have made us accepted in the beloved. When we have been truly brought into a relationship with God, where our inner being, That hard shell, that seed that was a hard shell has been broken open by the circumstances of pressure that God has premarked. By the light of his truth that has been caused to shine like the sunlight on our life with conviction. And by the spirit of God like the water melting the hardness, bringing us to the place where the shell of self-worship is broken. And we begin instead to worship of being in the state of deceptive self-worship, to be in the state of selfless worship of the one true God. The Almighty's one. Elohim is another name for God, which means the Almighty's one. The one true God. And God is wanting his corporate bride. He is wanting his people to repent of these false teachings which I outlined at the beginning that fail to recognize God, that fail to genuinely fear God. These teachings are used to take people away from the genuine fear of God. When Christ was on the cross, it's true that he received the judgment. we deserve to receive it fell upon him the judgment of all creation in rebellion against god fell upon him but it is also true that he never lost his faith in the father because he totally had a genuine fear or reverence or reciprocate in that reverence a total reciprocation of faith when he was on the cross He experienced the forsaking of God's presence, but he was still God. Because that link of faith was never broken and couldn't be broken because he is God. And so he trusted in the Father. And he never ended up with his soul and spirit in a state like a clenched fist in rebellion. When he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Experienced the forsaking of God's presence. But it was not without trust in the Father. That link of trust was never broken. He was always in a state of selfless purity in his soul and spirit in union of trust with the Father. That is why it says in Romans 1.4 that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the spirit of holiness. His spirit was totally holy, totally pure in its trust unto the Father. It never did allow corruption in it. Yes, he absorbed the judgment of sin upon himself, but he maintained that link of union in the Father and said, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And because of that, Because of the spirit of holiness in Jesus Christ, God the Father could raise him from the dead because that link never was broken. It couldn't be. Jesus was and always has been God and fully God manifest in the flesh in this world. Before he died on the cross, when he died and after, And to teach otherwise is to deny who God is and to fail to recognize who God is. He is ultimately trustworthy, and he is only ultimately trustworthy because he has no corruption in him and can, in the integrity of his love, and has absorbed and tasted death for all so that they can repent and receive forgiveness who have through the physical creation indirectly sinned against God and not directly against his spirit of goodness. This is the good news. And God is calling us as his people to become his corporate bride, to be that city, to be that temple that recognizes his loving kindness. There's a scripture in Ephesians that says, Paul is praying and he says, one of the things he says is that he wants us to know the exceeding riches of God's inheritance in the saints. And it talks about knowing the inheritance of the saints in light. And God wants our heart to open up to who he is and totally be reciprocative of who he is and his mercy towards us and his love that was poured in his blood on the cross that can cleanse us and make us white as snow when we receive his atoning work. He wants us to recognize. And it says, as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so we're to walk in it. So in the way we receive Christ like that publican and sinner. So we are to continually go on in that reciprocative state of worship that is to the praise of his glory. And what that will do is it will cause us to love one another. It will cause us to see how precious each person that is living a holy life that's a saint, that is seeking to walk with God, how precious their life is to God, and how great God's inheritance is in them. And we will see them out of the light of who God is. This light that is filled with such purity that we will begin to recognize God's inheritance in the saints in light. And that's out of recognizing the greatness of this light of love that is filled with such holiness and such grace. May we learn to delight, to dwell in his temple upon his loving kindness so that we are knit together as living stones to be that city of God, to be that corporate bride that he's coming for, for the hour is urgent and judgment is great that is coming upon the earth and the deception in the body of Christ is very great at this time. With false counterfeit revival, counterfeit conversions and counterfeit ministries that emphasize a prosperity gospel and refuse to emphasize The cross and intimacy with God doesn't mean that God can't prosper us materially, but when that is the focus and the emphasis, there is deception because God has chosen the poor, rich, and heirs of the kingdom of God. Some he entrusts with the riches, others he does not. And to teach otherwise is to teach a false prosperity gospel which the church of Laodicea taught And they refused to recognize that they were naked and wretched and miserable and poor and blind. God is calling the body of Christ to repent of being in control instead of letting Him come down and be the head over the body. We need to repent of refusing the headship of Christ in these last days in our local assemblies. We need to repent of refusing to be the house of prayer. We should be starting our meetings with the leadership and and all people upon their faces and on their knees, whether literally or not, bent in our heart before God and utter awe of who he is and the fear of God and humility until we break up the fall of ground with the calves of our lips. And then, out of that great humility, will come the pure work of the Spirit of God that is not puffed up. The crooked places will be made smooth and the rough places straight The mountains will be brought down and the valleys will be raised and all flesh will see the glory of God. And so it will be that when the world system is destroyed and the Antichrist system is destroyed as is described in Isaiah 24 by that great earthquake and in Revelations by that great earthquake, as it says in Isaiah 24, there will be assemblies that will praise him in the midst of the fires. It says there they will worship God. They will be his bride. And as the Lord says, as truly as I live, says the Lord, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. And praise will spring forth around the world as buds from a garden. And the glory of God will fill all the earth. As the Antichrist is destroyed in his Babylon a system by that mighty earthquake. After the f- first Babylon is destroyed by fire in the last days. So I encourage denominations to repent, not letting the body of Christ. I could talk a lot about this, but there's not time. I've been now preaching for an hour and 22 minutes approximately. So I will sign off now, and I thank you for listening to this message. May God bless you all. Thank you.